Hello everyone and welcome to the Centre for Progressive Policy's fifth and final event during the course of Labour Party Conference. Uh, my name is Charlotte Aldrich, I'm Director for the Centre for Progressive Policy, CPP, and um, it's my real pleasure to um, introduce two fantastic speakers in their own right, but they'll be having a conversation between one another. Um, Stephanie Flanders, who's Head of Economics at uh, Bloomberg and is formerly the chair of the Inclusive Growth Commission, uh, which we worked on together, and um, Annalise Dodds, who is the Shadow Chancellor. Um, by way of a little bit more background, um, Annalisa was, um, is a Labour and Cooperative member of, um, for Oxford East. She was first elected in June 2017 and um, was quickly appointed a Shadow Treasury Minister. So um, it's a real pleasure to have two such uh, fantastic economic uh, experts here to think about uh, the themes that we are uh, very uh, committed to at CPP, predominantly inclusive growth, what the government calls levelling up agenda, and I'm sure uh, similar and wider themes will come up during the course of their conversation. Um, you will be able to um, pose your own questions on the question and answer function and um, Stephanie will try to bring you in towards the end of, the of their conversation. Um, and uh, if you want to tweet, please do so at Centre Pro Policy, hashtag CPP Level Up. Uh, and then finally, just to say that we are recording this uh, session and it will be dis disseminated on our CPP uh, channels after the event. Um, so without further ado, I'll hand over to Stephanie. Thanks very much, Charlotte. Uh, I'm very happy to be here. Um, I've been thinking about our Inclusive Growth Commission quite a lot uh, as COVID has sort of taken over the, the economy. Uh, there's a um, Robert McFarlane, the writer, has written a wonder book, wonderful book called Un Underland. Mm -hmm. And in it, he talks about that the what's happened when things that are buried deep in the ground in the Antarctic or the North Pole or the upper reaches of Scandinavia come out of the ground, things that people thought would be buried forever are becoming out of the ground because of global warming and they're called unburials. And it feels a bit like uh, a loss has been unburied in the UK by this virus. It's sort of pinpointed these weaknesses and inequalities that were lurking beneath the surface of the economy and society with almost sort of laser precision um, you know, we've we've had very high employment, but as Charlotte, you and I uh, saw as we went around the country, a lot of it concentrated on low skill, low productivity jobs in service sector, which have been hit so hard uh, by the crisis. We had those extreme health inequalities that have got worse uh, around the country, and those have accentuated the really unequal way that this virus has hit people from a public health standpoint. And then we had that the, the deeply over-centralized uh, government and economy, you know, London playing a very outsized role, which we, which was also replicated in the uh, pandemic, appears to have played a role in, in, in putting, giving us, um, uh, making us the kind of center of it for a while, uh, but also the lack of a mature relationship between Whitehall and the rest of the country. We've seen how it made it so, mm -hmm. so difficult for central government to have to implement nuanced local policies and also very hard after all these years of of reducing uh, the money going into local services it's very hard for local institutions now to fill the gap 
uh, in response to this crisis and provide that that leadership. So there's there's so many there's so many things that we've been reminded of that have been brought further up into the uh, into view. Um, but I think if you're a shadow chancellor and indeed if you're chancellor, um, you're facing not just that kind of the clarity of a long of long term issues we face, but this immediate need. Um, to support uh, the economy and to support people in a way that's in a way that's safe, and I, I don't uh, I don't envy uh, Rishi Sunak in having to decide now, in a sense, uh, what has a long term future and uh, what um, should be forced to adjust when we have so much uncertainty uh, in the economy. So I'm fascinated to hear Annalisa's, especially given her. Um, background and understanding of, of, of business as well as uh, a lot of these issues. I'm interested to know how she's thinking about it. I mean, Annalisa, I guess the obvious question right now, I mean, we have lot, I'm fascinated with how you're thinking about the long-term agenda, but short-term, if we think we're at a stage where we can be a bit more strategic about how we support the economy, so we're not just holding everything in suspended animation, but we're actually trying to do things that help people short and long-term, what would be the priorities for you, what are you thinking about? Yeah, well, thanks very much, first of all, for inviting me to be part of this conversation. And it's it's a real privilege, actually, to be talking to you, Stephanie, because I found your work just so illuminating and, and fascinating over the years. Um, and I, I thought the work of the Commission was incredibly helpful, actually. Um, I suppose, first of all, um, I, and it's an obvious point, but I don't feel that it's been sufficiently reflected as an economic issue over the last few months, we really do need to ensure that the public health response is radically improved. Um, because even aside from the impact of restrictions, obviously we've had additional ones announced yesterday, the impact of the lack of confidence that's being produced by what's happening in the UK I think is very substantial indeed. And so much of the debate is focused on the direct impact of restrictions, but actually what's happening to consumer spending, to investment by companies, when they're concerned that there, there won't necessarily be you know, a long-term functioning test, trace and isolate system that could help us to, to have a grip on this. I think it's really important that we don't forget about that. Um, and you know, I've said to the, the Chancellor a number of times that confidence is a, a critical issue now for our economy. And that does involve having a very strong grip on those public health issues. And they relate to many of those uh, regional matters, in fact, that you just reflected on, Stephanie, where we've seen, I think, very often a, a, a kind of reach to um, sometimes very large companies to try and deliver some of the parts of the response. Um, they've really struggled to deliver. They found it very hard. I'm not going to criticise you know, anybody in those organisations, they, they've done their best, but ultimately this is a crisis where there needs to be a more localised response because of its nature, because we understand how it's transmitted in different areas. I mean, the environmental health services not so far away from me know where the businesses are that will be struggling with this, where the overcrowded housing and multi-generational households are. It's not possible for someone in a call centre very far away from here to understand all of that. Um, so I think we do we do need to have more, more trust actually in those local services. We need to look again at the resourcing of this effort um, in order to improve that public health side. But then of course there is that big question as you said about the, the balance going forward. Um, arguably the, 
job retention scheme, a number of the other schemes that were put in place, as you said, to an extent, they, they preserved what was there, although, of course, they didn't do that entirely. And in fact, as we've seen the, the ratchet going forward with the GRS in particular, we have seen a lot of jobs falling out from that. Um, not fully reflected in the statistics, of course, yet, but um, we are seeing quite major redundancies coming through. Um, and, you know, I, I would be the first one to accept that there, there are difficult challenges. Um, there will be structural change, I think, as a result of this crisis uh, around, um, you know, business travel, around people's use of office environments, around working from home into the future. I'm sure we'll go on to talk about some of those matters. Um, so there are difficult choices about how we can make sure that we preserve economic capacity. But, you know, I think here government has to learn from what worked when it created those economic packages in the first place, I, I do think, I mean, it's been having kind of discrete conversations with the peak associations, with trade unions, etc. Now we really need to actually, I suppose, deliver on the messages that have been coming through from them, which is that, yes, we'll need support for those parts of the economy that have been directly closed down, but we will also need it to be provided for strategically important sectors of the economy going forward. Now, except there's then a challenge. How do you define what's strategically important, you know, there are boundary issues there. I've been completely open about that, but I've always said, yes, there are difficulties, but we have to face up to difficult issues and we have to deal with them. And the danger with the current approach is in saying that targeting is difficult, no targeted support is coming through. Um, and that's really the worst of both worlds. So just to be clear, so come the end of October, uh, what you and I know you spoke about this in your your conference speech. But for those who didn't necessarily hear it, I mean, what you think that he's right? We should we should get rid of the scheme as it currently is, but then what replaces it? A targeted scheme? How? Which sectors? Well, uh, again, we think the government needs to sit down with the representative organisations to work this out as a matter of speed. I mean, actually now this has become a rather more urgent question, of course, with the new restrictions that have been announced yesterday. Um, we do think that the future of wage support has to be focused around at least some time in the workplace. We think that's really important. Now that, that will be then of course difficult for those companies that aren't able to operate at all. And we think that their needs do need to be considered by government, but, the, the kind of successor to the job uh, 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 retention scheme, we think has got to be what we're calling a job recovery scheme where there is part-time working, then with subsidy from government, um, learning from what's working in other countries. Obviously, as, as you'd anticipate, I've been having a lot of discussions with the German side, the finance ministry, their SPD controlled a sister party from ours. I'm not saying that it's perfect. Obviously, it's a system which has existed for longer, um, but I think it has been effective, particularly in some of those areas of the economy in Germany where there are long supply chains, where there's you know very significant regional impact if those jobs go. And how are you thinking about the fiscal implications of this? I know that you, you mentioned in your, your speech earlier in the week that... Uh, that Rishi Sunak was sort of cavalier with the public finances, but it, you would presumably not be talking about consolidation quite yet. I wouldn't be talking about consolidation now. No, absolutely not. Um, 
I am concerned actually that I think um, businesses that might be seeking to invest um, large or small, I think they're looking at the current context and there's there's almost a kind of quadruple whammy really coming down uh, the roads. There's, um, I feel personally slightly loose talk around um, near term tax changes, which I, I don't think would be helpful. I mean, obviously in the long run, of course we have to deal with um, the cost of this crisis, but I think doing so while we're right in the middle of the crisis is not sensible. We should be protecting that tax base rather than talking right now about how we would um, actually tax it. But then you've also got, of course, the prospect potentially of a, a chaotic Brexit coming very, very soon. Um, you have the continued issues with the public health response in the UK. Um, and then you have the switching off of those different support schemes. All these four things occurring at the same time, just over the next few months, potentially. Um, I think that's that's just too much for many businesses looking to invest right now. It clearly is having a disincentive impact. Um, so I, I think government needs to work to, to pull those away as much as possible. Um, but then, yes, the, the reason why I was talking about um, uh, uh, that issue in my speech is because I've, I find the whole debate quite frustrating. You know, very often people have said to me, oh, so Labour just wants to spend more, don't you? And actually, I don't think it's about that at all. It's about making sure that public spending is targeted where it's needed now, that we don't have last minute panicked responses, as I would argue was potentially the case with the job retention bonus, that we have a more strategic approach so that we can try and preserve that economic capacity and keep people's livelihoods going as much as possible. I guess um, the, those who have sort of been toiling long hours at the Treasury, would uh, the response to that would be, well, it's all very well to talk about strategy, but if you are facing these very short order decisions, and now again, you've had the landscape has been changed as a result of the change in the public health situation, uh, that sets, as you've said, it sets, puts a different light on uh, the challenges for the budget and, and, and other things. I mean, we have lot, there's been a lot of talk since the beginning of the crisis about making support conditional on things that one would like companies to do or being strategic in the way that you target support. You know, is that really realistic when you're talking about uh, saving companies, saving jobs right now? Don't you just have to shovel the money out the door? Um, I, I recognise that argument, and you're right, it's been made to me a number of times. I think currently we're in a different position, however, because we've had six months of this crisis, and I've been making the same arguments actually throughout it, um, for example, around the fact that there would need to be a future for a form of wage support, and I've been saying that for a very long time, um, a number of issues where I don't think it's possible for um, not necessarily Treasury civil servants, I do think they're working very hard, but from the political side for uh, there to be a claim that, oh, you know, we're, we just have to respond to the immediate. I mean, one, I think, very obvious case would be around support for those self-isolating, where for many months it was clear the system was not working. And for many months we were calling on government to look at the evidence and we just had a change, you know, just a few days ago. Um, so I appreciate it is difficult. But actually, we need to learn from what's worked and what hasn't worked so far. We've had a little bit of time to do that. I appreciate everything's accelerated during this crisis, but we have had some time to do that. Um, and for example, we've seen with that furlough scheme, job retention scheme, 
for example, some companies using it, and I think that, I mean, the Chancellor himself has acknowledged this against the spirit of the scheme. So for example, um, uh, making people redundant so that they're no longer receiving a wage, but then paying their redundancy out of the scheme and those other kinds of practices. Um, now, surely we know that's happened. So we need to make sure that schemes into the future um, operate more effectively. And I, you know, I'm not talking about backward looking conditionality, but forward looking conditionality where also I think there's a there's a shared agenda here and I've talked to a lot of business who you know really feel that now is the time when um, you know we can work together on many of these issues there just has to be the political will around it I think. Well just to push on to that I mean it, one of the agendas that one could push would be a zero carbon accelerating a move to zero carbon and I think and you you suggested in your your speech earlier in the week that you know, that should be a clear condition of any public support that, you know, a commitment to that agenda. I guess the, you know, the challenge is, are you going to actually let a business fail if they can't present a challenging path to zero carbon, even if that means job losses right now? I mean, that's the challenge that many policymakers are facing around the world. Well, it is, but in many other cases, we see that, in fact, government has supported industries in order to be able to get there where there are those challenges. I mean, we see, for example, um, aerospace, where there's been a strong push towards supporting hydrogen, for example, um, particularly in France, but also to an extent Germany as well. So, yes, there are industries where there are those challenges. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I would, I would kind of flip it around and say, actually, there are many responsibilities on government around this as well. You know, when I talk to businesses, a lot of the time, the, um, the barriers to them reaching more environmentally friendly performance are because of a lack of government coordination or, or willingness to allow you know, local coordination around issues like planning, for example, energy use, um, other features like that. So you know, this, is, this has got to cut both ways, but I do think that there are many, many opportunities actually for that kind of joint working there. Um, and as I say, I do believe that we're seeing that in other countries. I'm not gonna say that it's easy. Is there gonna be any perfect system? No, there isn't. Um, but I think we, we should at least try and to be ambitious around this. You know, ultimately, we're talking about very large amounts of public money and a climate crisis that is upon us. It's not going away. And we should be working to do all we can to face up to that. I mean, I think a similar question. I think you said on Monday you spoke about conditions for investment in employment programmes being that being sure that they result in good quality jobs. I mean, I guess I would put the same a different version of the same question. If, how can you... If, if councils up and down the country and often parts of central government have presumably wanted to create quality jobs, but actually the jobs that were available, um, the jobs that were there to be had were low quality jobs. If that hasn't happened over several years, how are you going to do that in the next six months, 12 months, when actually you have young people potentially scarred by not getting any job at all? Are you really going to be able to say, no, it has to be high quality. I'm not going to let you create centre jobs or whatever it is? Well, I think we need to learn from what's worked and what hasn't worked here. I mean, if you look at the Future Jobs Fund approach, for example, after the last financial crisis, if you look at the um, work by the Welsh Labour government, actually their systems of support for young unemployed people 
um, have involved a, a whole range of different stakeholders who've been engaged to understand the local employment context and where there would be those kinds of challenges. Um, but secondly, they have had that commitment to good quality opportunities and above all to not just having substitution of younger workers for older workers who might not have the subsidy attached to them. So I think we've got those examples of what works, but I think also, again, government can do much more around this. I mean, we had the Prime Minister announcing uh, investment uh, uh, priorities before the summer um, recess for Parliament. Now, at that stage, there was no commitment for the delivery of potentially quite major infrastructure projects, including conditions around sustainable local employment. Why is that a problem? Because I think we know from a number of previous projects, I mean, I've seen it myself, too often we'll find a situation where there will be um, a company which does not have local connections. The, the workers will actually come from very far away from where that infrastructure is being delivered. There's not necessarily a commitment to upskilling the local population, to using local apprentices and that kind of thing. The infrastructure goes in and very often it's not actually necessarily precisely what people in that local area need. I mean, this obviously relates to what you were talking about around kind of decentralization and, and over centralization as well. Um, but there's, you know, government can really up its game around many of these factors around procurement to, to help to drive that. And I think currently we're, we're not using that potential of government to the extent that's necessary. Do you think, and does that reflect, I want to go on to the sort of long-term uh, vision in a minute, but just on that, would you say that it's a bad use of money in the current environment, the kind of infrastructure push that uh, Boris Johnson announced in the summer? I mean, the, the people criticised it for the numbers being relatively small and, and actually being a re-announcement of money that was already had. But just in principle, you don't think big physical infrastructure is the right response in terms of public investment? I do believe we have to have that investment in infrastructure, but we need to make sure it's both dealing with the infrastructure gaps where they exist in the most effective manner possible and having those positive impacts on employment. Um, I, I do think it's possible to achieve that. You know, again, I think we have examples from other countries uh, of both how to do this well and how to not do it well, as, as well as from our own nation, in fact. Um, and, you know, clearly, infrastructure investment is going to have a stimulus impact and we need that now we need that in the UK economy so it's definitely not bad I think it can be better is what I'm saying I think it can be more impactful um, if we have more ambition around this. Okay so just sort of stepping back and thinking about uh, what Labour's agenda is for for the country and some of the issues that I raised um, at the beginning I mean, you have a you have a conservative government that doesn't seem to care about austerity anymore. Doesn't seem to care, you know, is is happy to be borrowing very large amounts and isn't necessarily talking about short term consolidation, and uh, has also talked about leveling up. Um, how do you respond to that? I mean, what's the what's the Labour? I'm not sure what the conservative definition of leveling up is, but. What is your definition of levelling up? And is that something you recognise as a major part of Labour's mission? You've highlighted um, one of the problems with this debate, which is that levelling up can mean very, very different things to different people. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it's about dealing with regional inequalities, but also other forms of inequality. Um, and... 
I would say that actually I don't feel there is the understanding necessary of how to deal with those inequalities currently in government. Um, and I think that's revealed by the fact that actually um, austerity, I mean, I don't like using that term because I think lots of people um, don't necessarily connect that word with their experience of reduced services and, um, uh, uh, and, and you know, communities where the economy isn't working. But actually we're seeing those cuts continue in spades in local government right now. So, you know, potentially within year cuts coming in local government. Um, now, that is an enormous problem because I don't think it's possible to deal with many of those inequalities without having empowerment at the local level. You don't get then schemes that are well designed. You don't deal with the issues that people really care about. I mean, one example of this that um, uh, I, I'm kind of uh, uh, particularly a bit annoyed about is the whole um, Beechings reopening programme, where uh, rather than having a, you know, a proper joined up approach to the transport challenges in different areas, Instead, individual MPs have got to go and present their proposals uh, to, um, uh, to, to the, the uh, minister and to um, civil servants. I mean, I, this is just a, a completely centralised process. Um, obviously, it's one which, for the sake of my constituents, I've been kind of engaged with. But really, um, th this is not how we can deliver that sustainable change that's necessary. But what is levelling up? <laughs> what is... Yeah. Well, as, as I was saying, I think uh, I, I think it's both about regional inequalities. Um, I think there we've we've got to be very clear about what the uh, the parameters of those inequalities are. Um, if we just focus on income, for example, and don't take into account housing costs, then I think we can get an inaccurate picture of the extent of those inequalities and where they are. Um, I think it's obviously about opportunities for social mobility for accessing different forms of work, particularly stable work, where I think we've got some real deserts in different parts of the country where it's very, very hard for people to be able to access stable, decently paid work. Um, I think it's uh, also then, so as I mentioned, not just about differences between regions, but also within them. And I think it's really important that we don't miss that point. Um, I mean, arguably, there's a bit more discussion currently around um, the situation of towns, and I think you know quite quite an interesting debate around whether there could be potentially more of a role for towns with potentially more working from home. Although, of course, lots and lots of inequalities and issues raised by that development as well. Um, but we still don't talk very much about rural areas. We still don't talk very much about rural poverty, for example, and lack of opportunities for people uh, in many of those areas. So um, I think anyone who says uh, that they, um, uh, they've defined exactly what government's talking about when it speaks about levelling up um, uh, probably hasn't, uh, hasn't really followed the plethora of different, uh, you know, different meanings it seems to uh, take on at different points. I guess it's, I mean, one question I had was just in concrete terms, how are you going to empower these local areas? Because um, Labour in the past has had, there's been very sort of clear devolution programmes. But in terms of local government, actually, there wasn't a great deal of extra power given to them in terms of over public spending. And in fact, if anything, spending returned, stayed firmly in the centre or returned to the centre under um, under the, in the Blair years. 
So I'm just wondering, you know, right now, if you're talking about empowering local government, you know, what would you give them? What do you think you, they should have control over that they don't have control over now? Yeah, I mean, I, I would take it even back a step, actually. I think what we've had recently has been almost devolution of pain. Right. So we've had the whole discussion around localised business rates and that kind of thing. But actually, in a context where the central government grants has reduced so substantially to the extent that many local authorities don't get any central government grant to any practical purposes at all. In that context, there is just no ballast. There are very, very little ballast to engage in the kinds of economic development, strategic thinking that's necessary. I mean, I think local authorities do incredibly well, actually, in that context. I would include um, my own local one, which you know has a very, very strong focus on economic development, really good networks into other actors working on this. But actually, it really is a challenge um, when, you know, particularly right now, when many of those authorities are really struggling even to just deliver statutory services for them to be able to pull their head above that parapet and consider longer term issues around economic development. So, I mean, the, the, there's a short term piece, which is about trying to ensure that what capacity is there is not lost. And I think they're the mixed messages that have come from government around, you know, initially saying that lost income would be backfilled and then rowing back on that. So I think that's been very, very unhelpful. But I think in the longer term, there needs to be a mindset change. I mean, I've had kind of frustrating discussions with government around things like um, income generation by local authorities where they've said to me oh but that's all been risky hasn't it that's been really risky activity well you know what do they expect local authorities to do when they've had their grant cut back massively when it's you know they don't want to um, be raising additional council tax if they can help it not least given that's become an increasingly regressive tax there's limits to what can be done with business rates as well but actually, those authorities, they are, they're a convening power for the local economy. You know, they are they're that node which can be working with, um, you know, with with obviously LEPs, different business associations, universities, NHS, etc., to deliver that sustainable economic development. And they've been completely missed out of the picture, um, I would argue, over the last few years. I mean, one, uh, I guess, just to be a bit more concrete, I mean, would you uh, support... Uh, more cities, for example, being able to combine that to have more control over their health and social care and bring them together the way that Greater Manchester has. Do you think that is a good model for for other places? And do you think you know one of the places I've just been a bit more involved in in, in with Greater Manchester in terms of their agenda, but they are also like many cities looking for more control over their training, the allocation of training budgets and of um, particularly on the adult learning side. So is that something that you would think absolutely, you know, that's a clear thing that should just be decentralised? Yeah, I do, I do think there's a very strong argument for that, particularly around the training side and with the delivery of that Kickstarter scheme, for example, we were saying to government, look, they really need to ensure that there's a strong role for local authorities. And it's because they understand the local labour market, they understand the local skills sector, they already have a relationship with local FE colleges and local businesses. So it really does not make sense to not have them engaged to that extent. I think there's some really exciting examples of innovation, actually, that we've seen 
um, in different areas, both in mayoral authorities, combined authorities, but in other contexts as well. You know, talk a lot as you'd anticipate to the different metro mayors. You know, some of the the stuff that's been happening in different contexts, including in really challenging contexts, on um, Blackpool, for example, where there's been a lot of local work with people who um, have really, really struggled to access employment in the past. Very exciting schemes that have been happening. And so I think we, we need to build on that excellent local practice rather than having kind of national schemes delivered, you know, sometimes contracted out to one provider or whatever it is, or, or a number of them, but without those local routes being there. And uh, do you think, I mean, just if we're sort of, I'm, I'm struck when you're talking about towns and rural areas, which I think is, is very interesting, but, you know, what is the vision if you're talking now to what is still very mostly labour dominated uh, cities, governments, uh, all of whom have bet a lot on a model which actually bets on agglomeration, on, on you know, economic benefits accruing to a strong centre and actually things, Greater Manchester and other areas, city regions who've had their deals, have often, it's been about trying to make sure that the surrounding towns feel more of a stake in the success of the centre and feel more benefit from that, from being more connected. Are you saying to those governments now, you know, we're actually, we think we should be betting a different horse now, the future is not agglomeration and actually towns, we should be thinking about the opportunities for towns from working from home. Do you think we are looking at that kind of shift in the development strategy? I don't think we should be um, cutting cities off and, and suggesting that um, they're not going to be absolutely critical to our economic future. Um, and I think here, actually, we, we really desperately and urgently, and it's, it's hard because there's so much else going on, of course, with this pandemic, but we really do need to be making sure that we're having those discussions and developing plans for particularly hard hit and very urbanised areas. Um, I mean, I feel that actually we need to have openness around these questions. We need to understand what's going on around people's use of city centres. We need to think through what the implications of that will be for high streets, for different uh, very urbanised areas. And we need to have a planned approach. And Above all, we need to remove the impediments to having that kind of a planned approach. I'm very concerned. I think we're moving in the wrong direction. I think the white paper on planning, the um, greater ability to uh, uh, convert commercial property into residential to do so in a non-planned way does really concern me because I think, again, I think the role of those local authorities is going to be absolutely critical in ensuring that we don't end up with um, uh, I guess a kind of intensification of what arguably some people would say had happened in London, for example, um, maybe in the 1980s, where you had that kind of donut, you saw the economic activity, or at least the better of people moving out of the centre and then major issues um, applying there. And, you know, th these are going to be such challenging times for many, many cities, obviously, um, and I've visited a number of them over the summer. Um, in many cases, quite a lot of the um, the future of those cities has been pegged on the visitor economy. It's been pegged on, um, uh, you know, hospitality, tourism, uh, incredible facilities. I mean, I was in um, Belfast, for example, over the summer. I mean, it, it's amazing the transformation that's occurred there. Um, but we need to ensure that there will be a plan for the future 
given what may well be happening around those aspects of the economy and avoid um, a kind of, you know, sometimes talk about a kind of Detroit style situation, you know, that would be the nightmare scenario where there isn't planning, there isn't um, a clear uh, trajectory and where we see particularly cities really suffering as a result of these developments. Well, a lot of people would say, uh, I think if you're sitting in some of these cities right now being told that everyone's going to stay working from home for another six months, they would say that that kind of crisis is building right now. And you know, we can't necessarily plan our ways. But, but you had, there was a very, very detailed manifesto that Labour went into the last election with, with a great lot of plans and answered a lot of questions that maybe people didn't even have <laughs> in terms of you know, what to do with different parts of the economy. I mean, you're not going to be replacing that with another manifesto anytime soon. But how do you think about what's happened to Labour, Labour's policies under new leadership? Uh, is it completely a blank slate or, you know, which parts of that Corbyn agenda, which may be resonated uh, with a good chunk of previous Labour electorate, um, but they just weren't sure that it could be properly implemented. You know, what, which bits are you holding on to and which bits do you think need to go away? Well, I think the context for policymaking has completely changed over the last six months. I think many of the issues that, you know, Labour's been arguing for for a very long time have really come to the top of the agenda around poverty pay, for example, around needing to deal with those labour market inequalities. Um, I think there are, there are longer term issues. I mean, for, for myself, obviously, I'm somebody who's um, very much committed to a more progressive tax system. Um, but actually, the big question is how we can get there in the context of, you know, the deepest recession in hundreds of years. Um, so I think we need to be obviously reflecting that in the policy positions that we have now. We will be engaged in that process, as you said, Stephanie, of developing uh, detailed policy proposals for the next general election. But right now, our approach is really to be focused on, you know, doing all we can uh, where there are problems with the government's approach, you know, trying to be a constructive opposition, trying to get those issues fixed so that we can end up in a better position as a country. That's that's what our priority is now. But as far as you're concerned, it was too, I'm just trying to think of sort of what your, a, a manifesto, regardless of the details, a manifesto that you're comfortable with would be less ambitious, less detailed? Um, I, don't, I don't think it can be less ambitious at all. I think it has to be but there was you know, quite significant chunks of the economy were going to be nationalised, we were going to create new departments. I mean, it was, it, was, it was quite universally agreed to be the most ambitious in terms of concrete changes that were being attempted of any manifesto in quite a long time. But, but then I suppose, Stephanie, we could say, well, look at what's happened over the last six months around, um, you know, for, for example, um, uh, the recognition of problems in the social security system, finally, um, that, you know, we were trying to point out for a very long time indeed, but, but also the problems that it's revealed, uh, this crisis. And, you know, a number of them, I would say, are areas where uh, we will need to um, really seek to develop policy that, that will be effective. I mean, one thing that's been, very clearly revealed to me throughout this crisis is the um, poor quality of industrial coordination, at least the extent to which uh, the centre 
um, works with those out in the country who can help to deliver that. I mean, I've, I've been really frustrated by the fact that we've got lots of excellent manufacturers, for example, trade unions trying to work with them. And it took a very long time to unblock those processes to get the production that we needed for the public health effort. That will have to be a much bigger part of uh, Labour's thinking into the future, how we can really sort that out for the future so that we get the the benefit from all the innovation and the uh, uh, the fantastic work that's going on in the, the private sector and, as I said, the trade union movement. So, you know, I think for us to, you know, okay, we can't say that this pandemic has changed everything, but I really do think it will be a very different context as we move into that next general election. So it, it doesn't really make sense, I think, for me to say now exactly what those policies will look like. One of the things in the context that has changed completely is the environment around public spending and borrowing, obviously. And uh, we actually we have a, a, a question about this from Mike Cashman, who's uh, we all we all heard from the Tories in late 2019 what a disaster for the UK major public spending would be, and have now seen public spending that makes 2019 plans seem timid. You know, where on earth does that place the public finances in 2020? I mean, I would say to you, as, as someone who is potentially a future chancellor. Uh, you're, people are never going to believe that we need to cut spending and cut borrowing ever again, are they? I mean, they've been shown that actually there is a magic money tree uh, that has suddenly magically produced all this money that they've been told for 15 years or 10 years was not there. It doesn't that make things very difficult for any chancellor looking forward? Well, I suppose there's another difficulty as well, isn't there, which is that people could look back on this period and if they believe that spending has not been effective you know there are two different directions that could go in right so that could go in terms of reducing people's belief that actually public efforts can deliver for them and can help them in their communities or we could end up in the kind of situation that I want which is where we're talking much more about where that public spending is directed and what needs to be done to get the best benefit from it. So um, I, I think, you know, some of the debate, I sometimes find it a bit frustrating. People say to me, oh, well, you know, surely Labour's just saying that you want to spend even more. Well, actually, that's that's really not where I am at all. I think, um, and in fact, I talked about this quite a bit in my speech, if we look at the some of the delivery of particularly the public health response and, and the way that's been gone about without adequately specified contracts that work with the public sector in particular, um, you know, kind of last minute, what I would view as panicked measures, that's not been public spending delivering in the way that it needs to. Um, uh, and I, I think also it arguably highlights the need for just more capacity into the future. Um, because not having that capacity can't be fixed. I think we're, we're seeing that to an extent. It can't easily be fixed with ad hoc funding, uh, uh, you know, delivered in the in the midst of a crisis. And what would be your uh, principles? I mean, there's been some discussion around uh, the balance of, you know, again, just in broad terms, if we if we're thinking about the big pile of public debt, but also the continued potentially continued high borrowing that will have to come down eventually, even if we're not trying to reduce the stock of debt. Uh, th there, is, there has been uh, some belief that the balance of consolidation between spending and tax rises, spending restraint and tax rises would be very different next time around. And I think even many conservative voices have suggested that there can't be a big emphasis on spending cuts. Is that, I mean, just on that basic level, is that where you are, that the bulk of consolidation that happens should be through tax rises? 
I mean, I, I have to say that I, I think that that debate occurring right now, personally, is premature um, because, as I mentioned at the beginning of this, I think that some of the kind of shadow boxing that's going on in the Conservative ranks seems to be actually leading to concern in the business community around the impacts of this. So um, I think we should be focused on the, the size of the tax base, you know, trying to retain that. Um, into the future, of course, there will be questions around taxation then, um, you know, I, I do think that we need to have a more progressive system, as I said, I think that we need to ensure we're not denuding public services of their resilience, which clearly did happen um, after the last financial crisis, and we're, we're kind of reaping the, the re really negative implications of that now. Um, I think the precise uh, balance of, of how that works will need to be looked at very, very carefully indeed. Um, but I would also just say as well that obviously the, the, the kind of size of whatever needs to be dealt with into the future can be impacted by government. The most successful way to try and deal with this now is to try and prevent that reduction um, in economic capacity that we're seeing, um, you know, to try and prevent us having to have a, a more generalised lockdown, um, which would clearly have a really significant impact, you know, knocking 5% off GDP, setting back the recovery by around a, a year, potentially. Um, so that focus on the public health side, again, is, is so critical. Actually, I would say just on the, the, our economists at Bloomberg, they confirm that in a lot of the analysis they've done thinking about the, the long term implications. If you if you uh, allow more scarring and take withdraw support too soon uh, in your handling of the of the pandemic, it's quite clear that the fiscal situation is worse in a few years time than it would otherwise be. So you're right. They've confirmed on that. And I think the government uh, has uh, accepted that. Um, there is, there is a big debate that has, is happening globally about the right balance of taxation uh, of labour versus uh, capital. And mm. it seems to me coming out of this crisis, that's going to be heightened because one of the, that there was such unequal effect. It's been very geographically sort of widely dispersed, the impact of the coronavirus. But from a financial standpoint, you know, there's a big chunk of the population that has actually benefited, has actually seen its savings soar, uh, has put money into this, has put that savings into the stock market or has been given. And even the other side of the rising government borrowing is a load of bonds which are now sitting in a lot of private bank accounts. So, you know, providing financial assets for the for the capital wealthy. So. Do you think this is going to be an opportunity for any government to think about that balance, the relative taxation of capital versus labour? I say not specific measures, but just revisiting the right balance. I mean, I, 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 as I say, I do think these are, as I said, like a stock record, I do think these are issues for the future. I don't think they should be the focus of government now. I, I think there are a number of issues about um, the balance of taxation in the system, actually. There's one that you mentioned. There's also uh, questions around the treatment of self-employment as against employed staff within the tax system. There's questions about the taxation of um, uh, value based on intangibles as opposed to um, you know, uh, business rates and that, that kind of regime in the UK. Um, you know, I think there are a number of issues of balance that need to be looked at. Um, I did a, a session with the Chartered Institute of Taxation yesterday. I think there are principles that will need to be applied to that. You know, I always say there needs to be simplicity. We need to start treating reliefs much more like they're 
spending than we traditionally do in, in the UK because, you know, they've ballooned over time. We need to make sure that any changes are well planned and not subject to the numerous loopholes that infect the UK's tax system and make it much less effective and you know obviously for for me as a labor politician that's got to be within the overall rubric of getting to a more progressive uh, tax system oh, there's a couple more there's a couple of questions that i want to get to but i know that charlotte Aldrich will also not uh, forgive me if i don't ask about brexit she was particularly <laughs> amazingly she actually really wanted me to talk about brexit but i i mean i think um her question and her focus is in what it how labor plans to deal with that in thinking about this levelling up agenda. I mean, if a big chunk of former Labour voters voted for Brexit uh, on with some expectation that that would uh, support their economic future and somehow support this levelling up agenda, um, how are you going to win those people back if it, especially, it, especially perhaps if it turns out that they were wrong and that actually Brexit has made a lot of their challenges harder. How does Labour not come across as they're just saying, uh, I told you were wrong, now you maybe you'll listen to us? How do you build up trust uh, as we see Brexit happen, even particularly if Brexit turns out to be very difficult? I mean, I, I believe that people's aspirations to, to get to a better situation across the country are, are right, actually. And of course, Brexit has happened. Um, you know, whether we like it or not, that has occurred. I think we're into a very different debate now, which is about obviously the, the terms of the new relationship. And we've, we've been promised that deal. Um, you know, it doesn't seem like it's at the stage that, you know, I certainly would have hoped it would be by now. Um, you know, still major issues involved there. Um, and I think, you know, it's really critically important, particularly around some of these issues of investment that we see openness and honesty from government and real proper engagement. And as we've been talking about, that we do see investment being delivered in communities that need it and not the kind of peculiar discussion that's developed in some quarters, pretending that in particular the state aid regime is blocking um, that delivery of investments. I mean, we, we look at other nations and we see a very different approach, um, actually, and far less regionally unequal economies than we have in the UK. So um, yes, I think, it, I think it is a different debate now. It's about those conditions on which we leave, but we really need to see delivery of, uh, you know, of that investment really that was promised and improved life chances that were promised. Do you see, you know, I think everyone is sort of has a duty to look for opportunities in this. Do you see opportunities in Brexit and think whether it's around state aid or other things, things that you could do or local governments could do that perhaps was was harder for them to do pre-Brexit. Do you see any advantages economically? I, mean, I think the current period certainly is leading to a lot of reflection around, in fact, a number of the issues that we've been talking about, you know, whether they're regional inequalities, the UK's industrial capacity, um, our exporting uh, capacity. Um, uh, and so from that point of view, I think now, now is a time when hopefully we can try and get much more of a grip on those issues. Um, but, but I do think we need to be clear about where the blockages are. I mean, one um, area that I'm quite concerned about sometimes is some of the discussion we have from government around reshoring, where um, they almost seem to be implying that, well, if we have harder borders, 
and stricter borders with more disruption that will automatically lead to onshoring actually without um, remedial action and without uh, additional support for supply chains, what it's likely to lead to is just job losses and just to businesses moving elsewhere. So, you know, let's have an open discussion, I think, about where the blockages are, one that's really informed by, by practice on the ground and by, by local economies. Um, and one of the questions from, from Andrew Burns, which is a bit of a leap, but is like, what sort of measures other than GDP and average earnings do you think we need to measure or to track progress in levelling up in climate sustainability. Charlotte and I got very interested, very focused on statistics uh, and new new measures of particularly of local economic activity when we were doing our report. Yeah, no, I think there's a, a huge amount of, um, you know, really interesting work that can be developed around this. Um, I think we do need to move beyond just having uh, GDP as well, I wouldn't say it's a sole measure because other measures are used and they are talked about, but um, I think we do need to have a more sophisticated understanding. Um, a really lively debate um, involving groups like the Commission and you know Richard Layard and others about um, how we can better measure well-being. I mean, I, I suppose uh, I, this certainly doesn't apply to, to, to your work, but in some contexts, I think uh, th there's been perhaps a slightly manipulative suggestion that, you know, if we're looking at, say, low-income families, um, that actually uh, we should um, not focus on how much funds they have to spend, for example. I don't think that's helpful because I think actually money still is very important to individuals at the, at the bottom end. Um, but do we need to have a more sophisticated understanding of what's important for economies uh, locally and nationally? Yes, we absolutely do. And uh, there's another uh, question that's, that's come up. I mean, there is um, one of the things when I'm sort of talking to people globally about changes, you know, people are thinking about how the global economy might be affected, how trade might be affected by coronavirus. And that some of the early expectation that people would immediately uh, bring production home has, has not really been borne out. So we will still have a globalised uh, economy. But one thing that everyone seems to agree on is that this crisis is going to accelerate uh, companies' efforts to automate. And obviously we were already concerned about the pace of that and how that was going to be dealt with in the labour market. I'm just interested, if you have British companies whose response to Brexit and to the challenges they had with supply chains earlier in the year is to automate and maybe have a hundred not so great unskilled jobs be, be uh, replaced by a handful of really well-paid skilled jobs. Are you, is that gonna be, and they may be able to compete better internationally if they do that. Presumably, I mean, you as a Labour Chancellor is not gonna have an issue with that. What's your response to dealing with very fast automation, faster perhaps than we thought? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is a tricky area because there's so many different prognoses about the impact of automation on um, broadly on the social structure and, and the labour market, aren't there? And they're, they're very optimistic ones that this will lead to a new era where creativity will be prized and somehow those who were low paid previously can be kind of pulled into that. And then others who suggest, as you say, that this would be more something for, for an elite of workers um, with, with everybody else just feeling the impact on their, their jobs being cut out. I mean, I actually think that the key to a lot of this is around planning, actually, and engagement. It's about trying to look forward to those developments. Um, obviously, Tom Watson did some work uh, on that for Labour previously. Um, I'm a, a Fabian, and the Fabian Society is looking at this question 
as well. I think it is a question which applies um, also to how we value different forms of work going forward. And I think it's particularly interesting to consider it in the current context, where arguably, particularly jobs that have a caring element are receiving more valuation, arguably, um, in the public's mind. And, you know, many of those jobs will never be automated. Um, I, although I say that, I was at a similar seminar to this, and somebody said to me they thought it was wonderful that apparently robots are now going into care homes to help look after people. I mean, maybe maybe that's great, but um, I tell you what, I don't want to have a robot looking after me when I'm uh, in my dosage. I certainly don't. So those caring jobs, um, I think we do need to value them or they're part of this conversation too. Well, so I guess there's time for, for, for one more question in terms of uh, uh, how do we support now young people who are unemployed or or never have had a job as a result of the crisis? I'm hoping that you're going to come back. You're frozen on the screen, but I shall carry on talking. Oh, there you are. Um, the uh, Again, when you're talking about the sort of quality jobs, are there particular sectors uh, that you would focus on now as areas that would give what you like... A, a sort of rapid return in terms of getting people connected to the labour market and trying to reduce that long-term scarring effect on their career. Um, yeah, I'm, re I'm really sorry about my internet connection. I don't, I don't know why it's going in and out. I mean, I think, um, I do think actually we need to have a much more sophisticated understanding of um, broadly put, productivity problems and, and industrial strategy. Um, I mean, traditionally, we, you know, we, we haven't had any sector deals around care or around retail um, or around those parts of the economy that actually, you know, are delivered by large numbers of workers and we're improving uh, management, improving the skilling of workers could have really quite a significant impact. I think also actually in many cases, having a more open discussion about pay and its linkage to productivity is, is very, very important. Where arguably, you know, reduced pay over time has had a negative impact on productivity. Well, I think we've, we've ended on a suitably sort of micro point after quite a lot of sort of microeconomic discussion. And I appreciate I mean, this is in the, in the spirit of, uh, uh, of this event that we were sort of trying to get into what really with what might need to happen in this country. Um, you sound like you're having to go to speak at far too many seminars and events like this, but uh, I know that on behalf of uh, Charlotte and everyone um, at the centre, we're uh, very happy that you could, uh, could do it. And I personally was uh, happy to have the conversation. So thanks very much. And thanks to well, everyone thank for uh, dialing in. Lovely, thanks a lot. Thank you, Cheers. take care.